It is SNY.TV's The Juice on the Cuse podcast, covering Syracuse basketball, lacrosse, and football. Today on The Juice on the Cuse podcast on SNY.TV, we'll be talking about a key pickup at quarterback for the Syracuse football team and a huge rally in basketball. I'm Wes Chang, and I'll be joined later by Brad Bierman, and our guest today is our great friend Stephen Bailey from 24-7 Sports and CuseNation.com. Stephen, how are you today? I'm doing great, Wes. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, Stephen. Always a pleasure to have you on, and I want to get you started on this one. The big news over the weekend was that Syracuse landed four-star Mississippi State transfer quarterback Garrett Schrader. How big of a get is that for the Orange, and what does it mean for Tommy DeVito? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's really important. I think, bottom line, they have two quarterbacks now who are capable of playing at the Power 5 level. Um you know, it's it's been since Ryan Nassib when the Syracuse has gone a full season without needing two quarterbacks to play meaningful snaps. So I think you can just take that alone and say, you know, that's really important because they're almost undoubtedly going to need a second quarterback next fall regardless of who starts. Uh, what it means for Tommy DeVito is that there's going to be a competition. And, you know, I think everyone is on the same page here. That's my understanding is that there there is going to be a competition. Tommy has strengths in that and that he's been here you know, for three-plus years. Uh, he's played in the system. He knows the personnel. The coaches, you know, obviously recruited him. And, and Garrett has strengths in that. Well, he's really mobile. You know, he is a dual-threat quarterback. Uh, when Syracuse was recruiting him, they showed him film of Eric Dungy, you know, in the Veer and Shoot under Dino Babers. They showed him Quentin Flowers and Blake Barnett, uh, quarterbacks who played for Sterling Gilbert, uh, SU's offensive coordinator at South Florida. Uh, so he brings a different look. You know, while Tommy's a really polished passer, uh, he, he hasn't been able to offset a lot of the offensive line issues. And when plays have broken down, I think for a variety of reasons, uh, things have not gone well for Syracuse. So um, I'm really interested to see, you know, how the competition plays out. Uh, the big variable here is that right now, Garrett would not be eligible to play next year due to NCAA transfer rules. Uh, the NCAA Division One Council is supposed to vote and a one-time transfer proposal in January, if passed, he would be eligible. Uh, if not passed, he would need an, an immediate eligibility waiver to be approved by the NCAA. So, uh, you know, we'll see if, if that one-time proposal does get approved, then everyone will kind of know the way of the land going to spring ball, assuming there is a spring ball, uh, given COVID. So, um, yeah, you know, that's kind of my reaction. I think bottom line is it's great for the program because you have another quarterback who is able to go out there and play. You know, it's not going to be a situation where it's like, oh, which unprepared freshman are we putting out there? Or, you know, no offense to Rex Culpepper, it's not going to be a situation where you're putting a guy out there who probably doesn't really give you a chance to win. Um, but it's going to be fun. The quarterback competition is, is uh, always exciting to cover. Steven, that news comes on the heel of early signing period beginning last week. Syracuse adding 19 players on Wednesday. What are your general thoughts on Syracuse's class of 2021? Yeah, you know, I, I think it was a successful day. I mean, it was, it was definitely a little boring. <laughs> you know, there really wasn't anyone who flipped away day of. Uh, they, Syracuse didn't flip anyone from another school or, or sign a surprising player. They signed the 19 guys who they thought they were going to sign going into the day. And, you know, I, I think it's a solid class. I think it's, you know, all the last four of Dino Babers' classes, I think everyone but the first one he signed kind of on a short clock after being hired in, in December of 2015, they've all been about the same level, like between like 51st and I think 57th in the country. 
toward the bottom of the ACC. You know, the, the types of players he's recruited have changed a little bit. You know, they're bringing in more big bodies, especially on the defensive front. You know, you got a three-man front in the 3-3-5, and even those inside linebackers behind them are bigger. Um, more offensive linemen, that, that was a priority this year. I think that the staff will probably continue to do that and try and offset some of the issues they've had there these two years, the last two years, which have been partially based on injuries. But, you know, when you run a tempo offense and you're forced to play guys young, uh, you know, I think there are some variables that also contribute to that that are a little more controllable. So, um, all in all, good class. Uh, I think, you know, considering the pandemic and considering Syracuse were 1 10 and you couldn't really do in person evaluations, like I think, I think trying to take a high floor type of class for guys who, you know, check a lot of boxes, um, I, I think makes sense. And I think a lot of staffs did that this year. You want to get, get the, players you know you can get at a certain point because you, you won't be able to hit the road. Um, you know, and, and Syracuse did that. So it was a, it was a boring it was a boring early signing day. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it was the, basically the best-case scenario for what Syracuse was expecting going in. Stephen, we know that in this class, Deuce Chestnut is a great candidate to play right away, especially with Ify Melifanu heading to the NFL draft. Syracuse needed help on the offensive line, and maybe we get to see four-star tackle Enrique Cruz Jr. getting some early snaps. Who are some of the other guys you see being able to contribute early on in this year's class? Yeah, I mean, Deuce is the one guy who it makes sense to play right away. You know, he's got the physical tools to play early. I mean, uh, defensive backs is a natural fit where someone can play early if it is maybe that free safety position in the three three five, which is effectively a nickel corner, which I think would be a good fit for him. You know, maybe he gets a look at, at boundary corner with Malafano moving on. Uh, I think Neil Nunn is probably the, the guy who I put at the top of my list to, to replace um, Iffy there. Uh, Deuce could also fit at boundary safety where we saw Jahad Carter play this year. Um, he, he's someone who it makes sense to play. There are a ton of guys who I think are really in that position. Uh, Josh Huff, the, the running back from Pennsylvania, could just because he's got size, and we'll see if Jarvion Howard comes back. You know, we'll see. You know, Syracuse is going to have a power back. It could be Josh. Um, you know, but I think a lot of these guys are going to get to redshirt, and and <laughs> I know it's weird around here, but like that doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean that that that's a, that's a good thing, basically. You know, if it was a different year, you might have to play some of these guys, but because you have all these seniors returning, and you played some young guys last year. You know, you're able to redshirt your linemen, potentially. You know, like I think Jatias Gear is a really, really impressive player. Defensive lineman, I want to say like 6'4", 255. Like, <clears throat> maybe, you know, compared to past years, very physically ready to play. But if he's a defensive end and you've got Josh Black and Kingsley Jonathan and Caleb Okachuku back, um, and we'll see if Cody Roscoe comes back from this new state transfer from last year. You know, you might have the luxury of letting, of letting that guy get in the weight room for a year. Um, you know, linebackers, too. You've got so many strong linebackers. Like I, there's a couple of them I really like in the class. I think Malik Matthew from New York City is really impressive. And Austin Rue from Michigan. His father was a teammate with Tim Lester at Western Michigan. Like, I, I think there's a lot of promising players. But I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of them early. But um, Austin, Jatias are, are two guys who I think down the line could be really good. Um, and then the quarterback's always interesting, right? Justin Lampson, you got a dual threat guy from the Sacramento area. Uh, uh, you know, on paper, a lot of similarities to Eric Dungy. Um, like I said, dual threat, West Coast, really tough guy. He hurt 
uh, his knee his junior year, making a hit as a team's punter, <laughs> and then basically had to agree with the coaching staff that he wouldn't pull the ball on RPOs, so they would let him play. They're very, very much doing dodgy things. Uh, super aggressive, super physical. You know, everyone touts him as a leader and a guy who only cares, you know, cares most about winning. So, um, you know, I, especially with Garrett Schrader coming in, I don't know when will, you know, Justin Lamson will really get a chance to compete. But I, I think he is interesting, and I think um, he's someone who, if and when he does get on the field, will be an, an exciting player to watch at the very least. And Stephen, we'll get you out of here on this one. It wasn't all good news on signing day. Syracuse lost out on Will Wells, who decided to stay in Florida. Orange commit Hayden Nelson flipping to UCLA at the last minute, even though he's heading to the Bruins as a walk-on with no scholarship. Is there a high school senior or a JUCO transfer or someone else in the transfer portal that Syracuse could get? You know, I think, so at this point, they have four spots left. Uh, they signed 19 guys. Garrett Schrader will be 20. And then Jalen Moss, a defensive lineman from Rochester, remains committed. He's expected to sign in February. Everything I have heard makes me think that will be true. So you've got four spots left that can go to high school players, JUCO players, or transfers. Um, I, I think Syracuse is going to be patient here. I, I think there are some holes to potentially plug. I think a grad transfer offensive lineman would be right at the top of my list. Uh, grad transfer receiver you could do. You could try and go out and get a get a defensive back and, and plug it in really anywhere in that secondary. I think that would be um, would be really helpful. You know, uh, I think it's going to depend on maybe what some of the other seniors do. Um, if McKinley Williams doesn't come back, do you try and go out and get you know someone who can play in the middle, a, a defensive tackle, you know, a nose tackle, depending on what you want to call it, in the middle of that three three five, someone who can hold up against double teams. Um, so I think they're going to be patient. You know, there's no one out there right now that I think there's, like, strong, strong mutual interest and, like, it's clearly, you know, someone the staff is pushing for. You know, yeah, like, they've, they've taken some hard looks with some defensive backs. They looked at Will Wells. Uh, they really like Calvin Johnson the second. Uh, he's a Navy quarterback commit, but it looks like he's going to stay, probably stay in Mississippi. A lot of teams moved in after Syracuse did. So I wouldn't be surprised if they looked for more secondary help. Um, they sniffed around with some Juco offensive tackles. Uh, Anthony Belton and, and um, Jaquai Graham. Um, so I, I think they're still really doing their homework and trying to get a lay of the land. But, I, you know, I, I think they're really going to be patient here because, like I said, you only got four spots, and the transfer portal is going to be busier than ever, especially if that one-time proposal gets passed. You could then basically bring anyone into the plug-and-play for a year knowing that they'll be there. So, you know, to me, that de-incentivizes any school in Syracuse's position looking to make a turnaround uh, from taking the extra high school guy when, hey, you're going to sign a, you know, a college senior, you get him for one year, then the scholarship's right, right back open. You know, you can bring in a guy to fill up for four or five years the next year um, or bring in a, a transfer who, who redshirted somewhere else. Um, you know, the game is going to change if, if this one-time transfer rule gets passed, and I think Syracuse sees that possibility and, and, and really won't rush into anything. You know, frankly, if, if it wasn't for taking the quarterback, I wouldn't have expected them to take um, for, in Garrett Schrader, who was a, an obvious take for them. Um, I would have expected them to, you know, keep holding on to all five of them, going into potentially the, the February signing day and beyond. Stephen, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Again, our great friend Stephen Bailey from 24-7 Sports and CuseNation.com 
doing an incredible job of breaking down the 2021 NLI class. Stephen, appreciate the time as always, and we'll speak with you soon. Yes, sounds good, Wes. Thanks again. Always enjoy speaking with Stephen Bailey from 24-7 Sports, and I'm now joined over the phone by the Juice Online Editor-in-Chief and my very good friend, Brad Bierman. Brad, how are you today? I am doing well, Wes. Thank you. Brad, Syracuse defeating in-state rival Buffalo on Saturday in overtime, 107-96. to It didn't look pretty in the first half, but the Orange managed to come back from down 16 points to win it. No matter who the opponent is, a rally like that is still impressive. It certainly is impressive in college hoops to come back from 16 down. But this kind of game, Wes, was kind of a perfect analogy to what I've always said about my term I used in even last week's podcast, Professor Beheim. He does his best coaching in the month of December. More traditionally, when we've had the more normal type of schedule, non-pandemic year, when they have the number of tune-up games in November and December. And by tune-up, I mean just that, games in which they're looking at the film, they're dissecting it, going in depth with players, and really learning from it. Then they've done a pretty good job, I'd say, the last decade or so, getting the exact type of schedule they need. Opening up, of course, with exhibition games, maybe smaller schools at the beginning, game four or five, throw in against uh, the ACC Big Ten or play in Madison Square Garden or some other preseason tournament against a bigger type of school. But this is where Coach Beheim does his best coaching. And let's take the example of the Buffalo game with Alan Griffin. Here he is coming off the zero-point performance against Northeastern. Coach Beheim was able to dissect, analyze his play, what he was not doing properly on the court, bring him in like a professor brings in a student, sit him down across from the desk, either go over it you know, face-to-face verbally and or a mix of watching film at the same time. And you can see the results of a completely different player and Alan Griffin in the win over Buffalo. And, of course, we can focus on the one individual play in the comeback win when he blocked the shot late in regulation, which, you know, sometimes it's too dramatic to say that could be the play that turns out to change the context of the season. Well, it may be that play that does that, but, of course, there's a lot of basketball still to be played. But it's certainly in that element of, you know, a monumental play, a big play, and from a coaching standpoint, how the coach complimented the player after the game about that. So that really stands out to me, number one. Then number two, what I see about this team is what balanced offensive scoring, right? This was the first time since the six-overtime game when you have five players, you know, averaging as many points in a game as they did. And so, of course, it was overtime, an extra five minutes of play. But we have seen this so far this season, balanced scoring. So we've talked about it in the podcast leading up to this point. It's going to come down to the defensive effort, you know, most games. And as we also talked about last uh, week, and also Andrew Cowie, our guest, uh, analyzed it, you know, what kind of lineup is Coach Beheim going to have moving forward when Barama Sidibe comes back? Because, you know, we've seen how valuable Griffin and Garrier have been, pointed that out last week. Sure, the game yesterday against, you know, a great inside player that Buffalo had, need more bulk and uh, you know, more of a presence down low. But it's still the third element that I, I take from this game, uh, you know, in addition to, of course, the great comeback, was, you know, moving forward, how that rotation is going to play out on the court. Brad, you talked about the rotation in the front court, but let's talk about the back court. Kadari Richmond played the final 16 minutes of the second half, 
and the entire overtime. Joe Girard sat that entire time, ended up shooting one for six with only two points. Richmond ended up with 13 points, eight rebounds, and five assists. When asked post-game whether Richmond would start, Jim Beheim said, I'm going to quote him, we've got three guards and we're going to use all three. Got it? If you guys want to coach, go get a high school team and coach, end quote. Obviously, classic Salty Beheim there, but there's some truth because it seems like he's going to ride whoever the hot hand is down the stretch of close games. I don't want to brag here, Wes, but I saw that answer coming a mile away only because I've been around the program and Coach Beheim for just as long as he's been coaching. He does this all the time. I mean, that answer was just zero surprise. It doesn't matter who has reporters, student reporters, uh, people in the professional media change the ranks in Syracuse. This is what he does, as you said, classic Salty Bayheim. He's the coach. He never likes anybody to think that they know more about basketball than he does. And, you know, no coach really likes that at all. But, you know, we're talking about Jim Bayheim and we're talking about him doing the same sort of thing for, you know, 45 years. It, it comes down to, again, I mean, this happens in every sort of college basketball season. Some players aren't going to have a strong game. I mean, he didn't bench Alan Griffin for a zero-point performance against Northeastern. He coached him up. He got him better for the next game. I mean, he's going to do the same thing for Joe Girard. I mean, I think we all know that. He's going to coach him up, and he's going to get him ready to come out for the second ACC game against Notre Dame next Tuesday night in the Dome. And he's going to you know, tinker and alter with his lineups as best he sees fit. Now, that being said, Kadari Richmond has improved each game. Uh, you can still see he's not in the greatest shape just from watching his body motion on the court, but he's just a fantastic talent. And he brings elements that Joe Girard and Buddy Bayheim don't bring to the court, whereas they bring pure shooting elements that Kadari Richmond doesn't bring to the court. So, look, let's not question Jim Bayheim. He knows what he's doing. People can complain about a substitution pattern. They can, can complain and nitpick because everybody's a critic, and it's really easy to hit a target like that. But he's going to figure it out, and each game, as Andrew Cowie said last week, I thought he made a really important point. The, the kind of the game is going to dictate that. Team is bigger, he's going to go bigger. Uh, there's problems with the defensive performance by Joe Girard or Buddy Beheim. He's going to insert a quicker player like Kadari Richmond who can rebound better than Girard or Beheim. although Beheim's a pretty good rebounder, and, you know, Girard does manage to get his share. But, you know, Richmond does things that they can't do. So I, I sometimes think it's much ado about nothing because, again, I, I could have seen that answer coming a mile away. But I think in the end that's all good, and that's just all good about what this team is about, how this team is going to be different than other teams he's had recently. And I, it really gives me a lot of encouragement, especially when I see what the other ACC teams have done early in the season, that this team really has the uh, chance, the ability to compete for the higher echelon of the ACC this season. And Brad, we are right at the end of our show, your closing thoughts. As we head into late November, into the new year, Wes, I always think about, darn, we cover Syracuse football. They've got to be in a bowl game each year. And, of course, they're not in a bowl game for a second straight year, and that how, how that really hurts. I, I mentioned it to you last year. When I see teams on Syracuse's schedule, such as the Liberty, and some years it's been a Buffalo or another MAC team, playing a bowl game and a school like Syracuse in the ACC with, you know, a lot more resources than some of those smaller programs isn't, it really hurts. And I know how uh, competitive the ACC was this year and 
Of course, Notre Dame and Clemson leading the pack in the unusual year of adding Notre Dame, but it still really hurts a lot. And the other thing I, I thought about going into the bowl season is I really do applaud some of these programs that decided not to play in a bowl. And it really would have been interesting to think if Syracuse had qualified with five or six wins and then the players decided not to go play in a bowl. I really think that would have been a really interesting decision. I know it's a hypothetical, but these players have been through a lot, especially in this pandemic year, and they've been doing it without their parents in the stands. And I think, you know, without their parents, some road games, but nothing in the Dome. And how big that is when they're there to greet them after a game, whether that's on the field, after they change, outside, go out to dinner that night. So that, those are the kind of things I'm thinking about, you know, how unusual it might have been if Syracuse did qualify but decided not to participate in a bowl and exactly what the players have gone through in performing this season. Brad, my closing thoughts are on the Syracuse-Notre Dame game, which was supposed to be played on Tuesday, but because Buffalo had positive COVID tests following the game on Saturday, Syracuse will need to stop basketball activities because of contact tracing protocols. Syracuse's next scheduled game would be against Wake Forest on December 30, but I guess we'll have to see what happens during this time. A reminder that this is the reality of playing through a pandemic, and here's hoping that everyone from the Syracuse and Buffalo basketball teams remain healthy. That's it for us. For Brad Bierman, this is Wes Chang reminding you that a parade looks like a bunch of people excited about being in traffic. You've been listening to the Juice on the Cues podcast on SNY.TV, and we'll see you next time. This has been the Juice on the Cues podcast, part of the SNY.TV audio network. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com slash play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 